0: Welcome to The Small Business Show. We created a platform to have candid and in-depth conversations with an entrepreneurs and business professionals we find fascinating. Learn the tips and tricks for marketing, running, and growing a small business. The Small Business Show is the official podcast of Garuda Promo and Branding Solutions. Everyone, you're listening to The Small Business Show. My name is Swire, your host for the show. My guest today is Jeremy Miner from 7th Level. Their company is one of the fastest-growing companies rated by Inc. Magazine in both 2020 and 2021, of one of the Inc. 5,000 fastest-growing companies on the list. Jeremy is also a regular contributor for Inc. Magazine and been featured in Forbes, USA Today, Entrepreneur magazines, The Wall Street Journal, and host of other publications in the topic of sales. You know I'm a salesperson. I definitely have a lot of questions for Jeremy today. How are you doing, Jeremy? Hey,
1: uh, thanks for thanks for having me on the show. Good sir. How did you get such a cool name? You know, my, my parents gave me this boring name named Jeremy, which every kid in like the late 70s, early 80s, at least where I was born, was named like John, Jeff, or Jeffrey, Jeremy, a couple of the names. And I'm like, man, you just went with what everybody else was doing. So how'd you get such a cool name over there?
0: That's a good question. I Probably my dad wants to get a promotion and he used to work for a company called Swire Group. Okay. So he actually named me after the, the company. So no, that you know, is, hopefully that, that, that helps him, right? right?
1: I think everybody learned something new today about you. That is that is that is a savage father. There you go.
0: <laughs> I hope he got the promotion that he was looking for. You
1: better have got the promotion after that. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well hey, thanks for having me on.
0: So for those those of us who didn't win the Powerball yesterday, Jeremy, what should we know about you and the sales process?
1: What would you what would you like to know?
0: Hone it in for me. I think especially in today's competitive world, right? I think COVID actually changes a lot. You know, it used to be you go into your prospects, a uh, line of business, you talk to them, but now depending on where you are, you're not able to do that. So I think after COVID, a lot of things have changed and then sales is still competitive as it has been, if not more competitive. So how would you guide us, you know, regular salespeople to to tackle that?
1: Well, I mean, there's a couple of different questions there. So I mean, how did COVID change selling? Some industries it did, some some it didn't, right? It just depends on what you actually sell. But I think logistically, it was a good thing because it opened up several different industries that Mainly could felt like they could only sell if they were in the office or they could only sell if they were in the prospect's home, right? Uh, And I'll give you an example like, we trained you know, we train 158 different industries, and there's there's two industries that when COVID first happened, they came to us and they were just freaking out like, we're gonna go under, we're gonna go to business, and that was the insurance industry and the car industry. And I'll, I'll kind of tell you a little story. So, insurance companies would come to us that we're training, and they're like, oh my gosh, like. Our salespeople don't know what to do. They can only close if they're in the home like this is not going to work. And so we taught them specifically just starting to do it virtually, having a phone call, having a qualifying conversation, booking them to a second appointment Okay, with one of the reps. And virtually it changed everything for them because logistically what they were doing before is they're having to drive 20 minutes here to this appointment. And maybe that appointment went over by 10 minutes and they had to drive 15 minutes across town. And maybe that appointment wasn't there. So they're sitting around doing nothing for an hour. Then they drove over here to this side of the town and they might see three or four people in a day if they were lucky. Okay, but now when we got them on Zoom, they were scheduling appointments every 45 minutes back to back to back to back to back. So they were seeing nine, 10 sometimes even more leads per day. And their sales, I mean, I think they went up by 300 some percent during COVID. Now part of that was they just acquired more advanced skills. They learned how to sell a lot more effectively, like what they were saying and asking when they brought us on. But part of that as well was they were seeing more prospects, okay? So that was a big shift. And now they're probably, I'm assuming, never really gonna go back, right? Once they figured that. Now the car industry was the same. You know, we teach the actual, the largest, we train the largest, used car dealership company in, in uh, North America. It's up in Canada. It's called 401. It's not here in these States. It's up in Canada. It's called 401 Auto. Okay, They have like 40 some different dealerships, 45 dealerships or something. And obviously they were freaked out because Canada was much stricter than the United States in all those lockdowns. I mean, it was they just opened up, what, six, eight months ago, if that. And so the government basically said like, hey, people can't even come in your store. Like you have to lock the doors, chain them up, and if people come into your store to buy a car, you could get arrested. So what's a car dealership going to do at that point, right? That's that's kind of puts everybody out of business. So most of the car dealerships couldn't adapt to that. They couldn't change. And so they went under, unfortunately. And actually, 401 actually bought many of those dealerships up, okay? But the ones who were able to adapt, and we taught them how to actually get leads and call leads on the phone and actually get them on Zoom, okay? And actually sell them on Zoom and then actually meet them at the dealership outside to authorize the paperwork and to pay, and their sales went up over 180% over the next 12 months. Okay, So a lot of times, sometimes you just don't know what you don't know. You think you have to do it one way because you've never done anything else. You've never been forced to do it another way, and I think COVID opened up a lot of industries' eyes that maybe the way they thought was the only way they could do it. Once they were, once that was taken away, and they're forced to do it a different way, actually ended up being a lot better. So I think that's one of the biggest changes because of COVID that you, you following me?
0: Yeah, and as I was doing the show, I talked to a lot of different people, and you know, a lot of people unfortunately got laid off during COVID, and a lot of them actually picked up on the side hustle during COVID. So they have the passion, right, for whatever product and services that they have. But then they didn't know they also, as an entrepreneur, most likely you have to be in sales or conduct some type of sales opportunity. So before, you know, asking you what we should do, I want you to touch on what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see people who might have just started or been doing it years? Some of the mistakes that I think,
1: I mean, there's a lot of mistakes, but I think one of the biggest mistakes that most people don't even think about is when they when they get into a conversation, they don't know how to trigger the prospect to want to engage back. OK, they come in They, you know, they come across very needy. They come across aggressive, right? They come across really excited, OK, and attached. And they don't understand the right questions to ask. They don't understand the right tone when they're asking the questions. And because of that, it actually triggers their prospects to go into what's called fight or flight mode. OK, now, everybody's heard of fight or flight mode, but most people don't know that you, the salesperson, entrepreneur, actually trigger that in a prospect's brain. And that's a long training about where that comes from. It's been around since the the history of mankind where our reptilian part of our brain when there was a tiger walking around us caused us to like put our flag up, right? Resistance, like or put our guard up. And now because of all the advertising and all the selling that goes on pretty much 24 hours a day, we're constantly being sold to, right? And sometimes when I say that, people are like oh, no, Jeremy, I only I only have two or three people call me every week trying to sell me. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not, that's not what I mean. Let me give you an example. When you wake up in the morning, besides going to the bathroom, what's the first thing that most people do? They pick up their phone, they start going through their social media and they see what? Ads trying to sell them something. It starts from the moment we wake up. We walk into the kitchen. We start pouring some coffee. We turn on the TV. We see and hear what? Commercials trying to sell us something. We get in the car to drive to the office or drive to run errands. We turn on the radio. What do we hear? Radio ads, trying to sell us something. In fact, we drive down the road. What do we see on the sides of the road? Billboards, trying to sell us something. We get to lunch, we pick up our phone. We start looking at social media again. We notice our aunt or grandma is pitching her newest, greatest MLM opportunity. See, we are constantly being sold to 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And because of that, New information age phenomenon. Okay, because it hasn't always been around, especially since social media and the power of the internet. That's changed the ball game. Your prospects have built up walls of resistance. That every time they feel someone is trying to sell them something, they immediately put up this wall and they go into fight or flight mode and try to get rid of you. They say things like, "Oh, oh, we're not interested in that," or "Oh, we already use somebody for that," or "No, no, no, we're good. We don't, we don't need that." Or, oh, we just talked with somebody from your company a couple weeks ago about that. Or maybe they get on an inbound lead, let's say, depends on your industry, and they get on there like, hey, uh, just enough with the questions, like, how much is this going to cost me? And I'll tell you if I'm interested. That's because we're triggering fight or flight mode in their brain. Now, once you learn what we'll talk a little bit about today, it's called neuroemotional persuasion questions, It stands for NEPQ. And you learn from what we can show you how to come across in your conversations far more neutral more unbiased, like you're not quite sure if you can even help yet, especially in the beginning of a conversation because you don't know anything. You come across more calm. You come across more, especially detached, and you understand the right questions asked with the right tone. It triggers the prospect to become curious enough where they actually want to engage. They want to open up to you because they feel like they don't know why, but they feel like you might have something important for them. Okay. Now, do I mean when you get on a call, because when I say this, like you have to learn how to become detached from really the expectations of closing that deal and instead focus on whether or not you can help them. When I say that, people are like, well, it's not my goal to make a sale. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, of course that doesn't make any sense. On every single sales conversation you're in, your goal is to make that sale. Or if you're more of a complex selling environment, B2B, to move that to the next step in your sales process. Okay. But You have to keep that goal of you wanting to do that to yourself. You have to keep that internal because the moment the prospect feels you were only there to sell them is the moment they do what? They emotionally shut down. And any type of really good question that you have, they're just going to give you one or two or three word answer. They stay surface level, right? The whole conversation. And then at the end... Well, I, I need some time to think about this. I need to I need to do more research. I need to talk with my spouse. You know, we need to keep looking around as a company, and you get all these objections. There's a reason why, and it's not because of the prospect. It's because of how you're communicating to the prospect. See the difference?
0: Before we hop onto the show, <laughs> I actually watched one of the video that you have. It's in price objection when you let's say quote someone, your price, you know, they, they always say, like you just mentioned, we want to look around. We want to, you know, talk to your competitor a little bit. And then, do you want me to explain what you have answered or do you sure, want no to ahead. give the sure, answer? go ahead, go because ahead. Because I, I think one of the key reasons that you said is, you know, you don't want to get defensive, first of all. You know, well, some of us, over. myself myself included, what are they offering you? Show me, show me your price. So at the end, I what I really like about your answer is, assuming all things being equal you know what are you hoping to achieve by i know some of my clients will talk to 15 different company at the end they don't know who's who how would you really desire on it you know it, assuming that all pricing and qual- quality being equal you know what is your deciding factor and then you better take out your notebook and start writing notes because other than what they seriously wanted to because every buyer would say i want to buy price only you know Whoever give me the cheapest price, and there's a
1: reason why they're saying that. It's a lot of. So let's just go back because it's usually when a prospect says, "Hey, I just want to keep getting, I want to get more quotes, or I want to keep doing more research." It's because it's a downstream issue. There's something you said or did not know how to ask in that conversation that triggers uncertainty in that prospect's brain. That's causing them to say that because if they had full certainty that what you're offering is going to get them exactly where they want to go and it's going to get them the result, they would never have that concern. So that's more of a downstream issue of our sales process and our ability. Now, I'll give you the band-aid solution because a lot of you, if you're not of our clients, you wouldn't know that. Okay, So you might have saw like some video of me talking about that or a reel or something. So typically what you want to do first, and I'll, I'll kind of show this to you. Can you see this on here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So i got a whiteboard here. So you want to practice what we call the ABDs of selling. Now, have every, everybody has heard, you can read in any book here on my shelf behind me, oh, you got to follow the ABCs of closing. Always be closing. Let me make a suggestion. Always be closing is what average sales people do in the information age we live in. If you want to be a top 1% earning salesperson, I'm not kidding you when I say this. You want to make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in commissions, if not more. Or if you're a business owner that wants to two, three, five times the revenue you're doing now and the profit margin, you have to get your salespeople to start following the ABDs of selling. We're going to skip the C. We're going to call it the ABDs of selling. That stands for always be disarming. Always Hmm. be disarming. I don't mean cut a prospect's arms off. When I say disarming, I mean how do you get the prospect to let their guard down long enough to be open to telling you the truth of what's really going on hmm. okay and that starts in the very first words out of our mouth to the middle of our sales process to the end of our sales process when you're closing asking for the funds or whatever you do you have to always be disarming because there's certain words and things you're saying that's triggering the prospect to have sales resistance and run the other way so let's go back to that how to answer that type of an objection because like I said Typically, you can fix that where most of your prospects won't even have that objection. That's called objection prevention, okay, not even objection handling. But if they say, yeah, you know, this sounds really good. We just, you know, we've got a few companies that we're looking at. We want to see what they offer. And so you simply disagree. Yeah, that's not a problem. You just agree. Yeah, that's not a problem. What are you hoping those companies say to you? Now, why would I first ask that question? Yeah, it's not a problem. What are you hoping those the the company show you just so I have an understanding? Well, we're interested in, and usually that's going to tell you what their concern is. But let's say they come back and say, "Well, we're just looking at the you know what, what's going to be the most cost effective or the cheapest price." Yeah, that's not a problem. And just so you're aware, it just all depends on you know the type of result you're wanting to get. You know, are you wanting to like go with somebody who's the cheapest? and maybe not get the same result, or are you more looking at possibly going with the company that's gonna get you the best result? So it just kind of all depends. But let's say that you go and meet with those companies, okay, that you talked about, X, Y, Z and A B, C Company. And after you meet with them, you know, it comes back that they can say the solve the same type of problems that you talked about with me, just like we can you find that they can they can solve, you know solve the same problems, fulfill the same needs and get you guys where you're wanting to go. And everything's pretty close, including the price. At that point, how would you then decide who to go with? Mm-hmm. Whatever the prospect says at that point, you better write that down because that right there is either a concern or something that is their hot button that you're gonna focus on to close that deal right there. Because I can pretty much assure you, 99.9% of other salespeople that are trying to win that account would not even know how to ask a question like that. They would just try to offer like a rebuttal and then the prospect gets pissed and they get kicked out of the home or the office. So you're going to say, yeah, that's not a problem. Now, let's say that you go and, and meet with all those other companies and they all you know, can solve the same problems and challenges that you mentioned to me. And everything's the same, including the price. At that point, who would you? Th- how would you then decide who to go with? Well, at that point, it would come down to this. And whatever that is, is what you're going to focus on. Does that help?
0: Yeah, I think especially my problem is, you know, I when after I ask that question, I need to shut up and hold my mouth and let them talk, right? So, yeah. you know, that's the, the time you want to take notes and not say anything, right? You ask the right question and let them answer
1: it. And a lot of times, like I said, nine out of 10 times, That is a downstream issue in a person's sales process because the salesperson doesn't know how to build a gap from where the prospect is. We call that their current situation or their current state compared to where they want to be. We call that their objective state. What is their future going to look like once all these newfound problems that your advanced questioning skill sets have actually helped them see they had that they didn't even know they had before they got in that conversation. That's called building a gap. And typically, the bigger the gap that is, because your questioning ability is far more advanced than the average salesperson, the less objections you get, and the easier it is to sell to almost every prospect. Now, if you don't know how to build a gap because you don't your questionings off, you don't know how to bridge from question to question to open them up where they don't feel like they're interrogated from your questionings. You don't understand verbal cues, verbal pauses. Well, that gap starts to become much lower in the prospect's mind. And when that gap becomes lower, that's when you get a myriad of objections and most of your prospects are not going to buy from you. It's all about creating the gap. You can't tell them because that's going to go in one out the other. Your questions allow them to see how big that gap looks.
0: Mm-hmm. So we talked about preventing objection, you know, and also how to overcome them a little bit. So in your mind, which way is better? So I'm sure that you have tactic and strategy for both. And is it better to prevent them from happening or try to learn as much as we can to overcome them?
1: Well, I think most people would say it'd be better to prevent them, right? So think about all the sales you've ever been in where it was just a laydown, and they didn't really have any objections. So let me, let me make sure I, I, I can tell everybody this one myth that is the most annoying myth I've ever heard on planet Earth because it goes against everything that makes rational, logical sense, especially from a behavioral science background. Like my background is behavioral science and human psychology in college. When sales trainers say, hey, you know, objections are good. The more objections they give you, the more interested they are in buying. Nothing could be further from the truth. Does that make any logical sense? Think about all the sales that you made where they didn't have any objections. And it went really smooth and they bought. How does that make any sense that the more objections they have, the more likely they want to buy? Think about all the prospects that had tons of objections. How many of them closed? Not many. (laughs) See, that is a magical myth. It sounds good. Hey, sounds good. Hey, you're getting lots of objections. That's a good thing. But there's no data to support that. In fact, the data shows quite the opposite. So you want to learn like when there's certain things that your prospect says to you that are red flags, like is this gonna cost any money? How much is this gonna be? Or just little things like that that you know in your industry that if they say that during your sales conversation, you know more than likely you're gonna get some type of objection from that at the end. You want to ask certain questions and seed certain things that prevent that objection from happening at the end, otherwise, it's just gonna happen at the end. Okay. Now, once you learn any PQ. By literally, our clients come to us from pretty much every industry, we train 158 industries at this point, and they say, wow, my objections have gone down by like 50, 60, 70%. Uh Now, it doesn't mean they're never going to get an objection again. So you still have to know how to handle them. But once you learn an EPQ and you build that gap from where they are compared to where they want to be, the prospect starts to view you much differently. They start to view you as more of the expert, more of the trusted authority that's going to get them where they want to go. Whereas they view all the other salespeople that just ask surface level questions and go into their pitch as just another salesperson trying to sell them something. Okay. So that because of that, they view you far more with more trust. And now they become more open to telling you what their real concern is. Because I hate to tell everybody when a prospect says, Hey, this looks good. I just need some time to think it over. Think it over is not a real objection. Does anybody honestly think they go home or they go back to their office and they just sit there for three weeks straight thinking it over all the time, writing out the positives and negatives? Hell no. You know that's not true, okay? There's some type of, pros- there's some type of concern or objection in they have in their mind, and they're not telling you that. They don't want to tell you that because they don't want you to try to overcome it, so they're just saying, I need to think about it, okay? You have to get them to open up, disarm them enough to let their guard down to tell you what the real concern is. You want me to show you how to do that? Sure, yeah, of course. Okay, so I'll give you an example. So the first thing, remember, first thing you have to do, disarm the prospect. Because if you can't disarm them, they're not gonna open up to you and tell you what is really behind the concern. They just won't. They're just like, oh, I just need some time. I just, I don't, I sleep on these things. They'll just stay surface level with you, okay? So if you don't know how to disarm them, you're not gonna sell that much when people say that, okay? So simply, you want to you make sure that they feel like you're about to leave. So let's say you're in the office, or if you're on Zoom, or if you're on the phone, okay, if you're on the door, it doesn't matter what you sell. B to C, B to B, it's all the same. You just agree with them. Hey, Jeremy, this sounds really good. I just need some time to think it over. Yeah, that's not a problem. Uh, what's your time frame on getting back to me in the next day or two to see if I'd be available for you? Now, why would I, why would I not try to overcome the objection right there? Because first of all, I have to disarm them. I have to get them to feel that they think I'm about to leave, okay? Because if they think I'm about to leave, the, res- the sales pressure kind of goes out of the room. If I come back with some rebuttal, yeah, but you said that you need, Why do you- what do you need to think about? Just triggers more sales resistance, okay? To shut down emotionally even more. Uh, you know, I don't know, I could call you back later this week. Can't have that, that's too much waffling. Nobody's gonna call you back like that. So you have to have a booked appointment. You said that, well, I'm not sure if I'd be randomly available like that with my schedule. Um, What I can do if it helps you, though, is if you have your calendar handy, I can pull up mine and have you book a specific time with me um, in the next few days. Um, That way, you don't have to chase me down and vice versa. Would that help you more? Now, notice what I just said there. First thing I said, what's your time frame on getting back to me to see if I'd be available for you? What does that imply in a prospect's mind when I say to see if I'd be available for you?
0: I'm busy too. I have work to do. Lots of clients.
1: It starts to build your status in their brain that you're An important person. You're not just like, okay, yeah, when can I call you? Saturday night at midnight? Okay, I'll be available. That just eats desperation, neediness. You're not really an expert. You don't sell that much. You don't have many clients. You're just waiting. Now, the second part is that's called a NEPQ calendar commitment. Yeah, that's not a problem. Um, And they say, oh, I'll call you back randomly uh, next week. Well, yeah, possibly. Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure I'd be randomly available like that, like with my schedule. Um, what I can do, though, if it helps is if you have your calendar handy, I can pull up mine and have you book a specific time with me. That way you don't have to chase me down or vice versa. Would that help you? That way you don't have to chase me down implies what? You're busy. You have lots of clients. You don't need them. OK, now. So then you have a book time. Then right, at it, right after you're about to get off. Sorry, the morning, let,
0: let me jump in. Okay, Even if I'm just sitting there on my hands, I would still use that. Right, to build up that momentum and the status level.
1: When you say you're doing what?
0: When when we're really doing nothing, that we open the whole week, for example, but we will still use that. 100%. So then... Okay. Because what's the
1: likelihood if, if you book with them the next day or the day after compared to you booking with them a week later, what's the likelihood of that percentage they're going to show up? Okay, it's a mm-hmm. 10 to 1 difference. You book a week out, most people don't even show up to their doctor's appointments that long without a text because they don't remember, Right. And they're they're about to die. Okay. So you want to book it a one or two days out. Now, but that's the main thing. You just want to have a booked appointment. It doesn't mean that you're about to you're gonna leave and not try to resolve their concern, but you want to disarm them where they think you're about to leave. Okay, so then at this point, here's where you're about to go. Let's say you're on Zoom, or let's say you're in their home or their office, just whether you sell B2C or B2B. Now, now now, Mary, before I go, notice what I'm doing. Now, Mary, hey, before I go, what were you wanting to go over in your mind? just so I know what questions you'll have when we talk on Tuesday. What did I just do there? Now, hey, before I go, so they thing I'm about to go. So they're more open because they think I'm about to go. Okay. Now, hey, before I go, what were you wanting to go over in your mind, just so I know what questions you'll have when we talk on Monday? And whatever they say next is their real concern. Well, Jeremy, I'm just not quite sure it would work for this. Or, well, you know, it's not, I just need to see if I have the budget for this. Whatever they say when you ask that, that's the real concern. And would you rather be there on Zoom or in person or on the phone when you find out the real concern and help them resolve it and close the deal? Or would you rather just hope and pray they show up three or four days from now? I think everybody knows the answer. Mm -hmm. So that's how to get the real concern out of them. Rather than saying, what do you need to think about? which is very blunt. And what most salespeople would say, you just relanguage it. Yeah. What were you, uh, now before I go, what were you wanting to go over in your mind? Just so I know what questions you'll have when we talk tomorrow, what were you wanting to go over in your mind is basically the same thing as what are you wanting to think about, but it's reworded. It's language differently. See the difference there.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jeremy, I think I skipped a point. I didn't you, you keep mentioning about the NP, NEPQ method. I, sure. would, you, would you mind to elaborate a little bit on, on that?
1: Yeah, and, and what, I think probably what's the, the best thing for your, your audience is to kind of go over like the three different eras of sales okay, or selling. Okay? So according to behavioral science, okay, just the psychology behind how to move, how to persuade human beings, there are three modes of communication. And I would suggest you guys all write this down, because once you understand the differences in persuasion of where you are now in your sales ability, even if you're doing good compared to where you could be, completely will change everything for you. Okay. so the first mode of communication is more known as era one type of sales. I'm not going to give the scientific term because it would it wouldn't make sense to most people unless you had a behavioral science degree. Okay. but if I if I said the words, boy, the room's selling to you. What would be the first image that pops up in your mind, Swire, if I said Boy the
0: Sally? Like high pressure for your aggressive?
1: Yeah. yeah, you think of the movies like Gordon Gecko, Wolf on Wall Street, hey, I got a great opportunity for you. And then we push and we pressure and we talk about the features and benefits and of why they need to go with us and we've got the best this and we got the best that. So according to the data, we are the least persuasive when we tell people things like that, when we attempt to dominate them, when we attempt to posture them manipulate them or push them into doing something we want them to do. Just like if you tell your spouse, say, really, we need to do something for you. And then you keep pushing and pressuring. What do they typically do back? Go away. They push back or they, <laughs> or they go into flight mode and run the other way. Or they go into fight mode and they push you back. That's just human behavior 101. That's pretty basic. So here are a few examples of the least persuasive way to sell. Presenting. We've all been taught, you have to have an amazing presentation, show them all the the slides for 60 to 90 minutes, show them your corporate office, your your quality and service awards, your customer service awards. Here's all the clients we have. We have the best this, we have the best that, which by the way, doesn't every single salesperson or company you've ever met that's tried to sell you something say what? We're the number one company. We have the best Mm -hmm. service. We have the best. How many salespeople do you know that come up and say, yeah, our product is fifth best in the market. Nobody does. They all say they're the best. So when you make statements that every salesperson has ever tried to sell them anything, say, guess what happens in their mind? The prospect actually starts to trust you less, especially when you talk down about your competitors. Why? Because they're used to every salesperson who's ever tried to sell them everything from a vacuum cleaner to a car to a house to some cybersecurity software. that says the exact same thing. OK, so according to the data, it's not very persuasive if your presentations are more than 10 percent of your entire sales process. And here's the problem. The average earning salesperson in North America and pretty much the developed parts of the world presents a little bit over 50 percent of the time. Get wow. hone that down and make it much more concise. Telling your story. Hey, to tell you this, nobody cares about your story when you're selling one to one. Whose story do they care about?
0: Themselves. Your story,
1: Right. Seems logical. Mm-hmm. Give it a sales pitch. We all tend to have to give a great pitch according to the data. Very low on the persuasion poll, right? We got to be excited, right? You ever watch Shark Tank on CNBC? Yeah. You know, Damon, John, Mark Cuban, Barbara, Mr. Wonderful, all those guys. Uh, when the entrepreneurs come out, they're really excited and they start pitching. Watch the body language of the sharks. Just watch what they do. They're like like this, like <laughs> skeptical. It's like weird, right? Because the enthusiasm is too much, right? And when we hear a high-pressured salesperson they're really what? Excited about what they do, which we don't care if they're excited about what they sell. How does that benefit us? Everybody's excited about their product or service, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't be working for them. And here's a big one, assuming the sale, according to the data, very low on the persuasion poll, especially if you're in more of a complex sales environment, B2B, which requires multiple calls and touches, or you're going to sell them other things, okay? So if you think about it, how many salespeople were taught her how to use those? It's, it's about 99%. Okay, that's the first one. Now, the second mode is more known as consultative sound, airitude. Most people have heard of that term, consultative. Uh, came out, we're more persuasive, when we have a discussion. Okay, came out in the 80s, 70s, 80s, with books like Spend Selling, that, that was one of them, Neil Rackham, college professor, never sold anything, by the way. But he taught that you needed to ask logical-based questions to find the needs of the client. But here's the downfall. When you only ask logical-based questions, we call those surface-level questions, what type of answers is your prospect gonna give you in return? Surface-level, logical-based answers. And do human beings buy on logic or emotion? Emotion! Brain studies prove that 100%. There's no no debate in behavioral science about that, okay? So when you you use questions like, so John, tell me two things that are keeping you awake at night. Or Cindy, um, who besides you would be involved in this decision? These are surface-level questions. Your prospects have heard them 3 billion times. Or what are you looking for in a solution? Surface-level. So if you're trying to get to the decision-maker, instead of saying, who besides you would be involved in the decision, we want to relanguage that. We might say, Sally, can you walk me through your your company's decision-making process when it comes to solving problems like this? And we're relating their decision-making process back to what? Solving the problems that they just brought up on that call. That's how we'd reword that. Okay. So, once again, you know, if we ask him at the beginning of a conversation, like, what sort of budget do you have set aside? Well, how would a prospect know what their budget should be when in the first couple of minutes, they don't even know what their real problems are, right? How many prospects do you talk to know all their problems? They don't. They might think they know. Like Steve Jobs says, most people don't know what they need. They do. That's true, right? Most of your prospects, when you first start talking to them, don't know what their real problems are. Or maybe they know they have a problem, but they don't really understand how bad the problem really is. Or maybe they don't understand what the consequences are if they don't do anything about solving that problem. OK, so how can we ask them what their budget is three minutes in the call when they don't even really know what their real problems are yet? Right. It doesn't make any sense. OK, so we have to move that. For later. A lot of salespeople do that and then they lose a lot of sales because they're not able to help the prospect see that they not only have one problem, But maybe they have two, three or four or five other problems they didn't realize they had. Okay, now that's error two type of sentence. It's more persuasive than Wolf on Wall Street type of gunslinging. But you're going to play the numbers game because you're bringing very little emotion out by simply asking logical based questions. Now, the third mode. this is where it gets interesting. According to the data, according to the science, we are the most persuasive when we allow others to persuade themselves. Hmm. That's called dialogue when we ask what are called neuro-emotional persuasion questions. That stands for NEPQ. Now, the trillion-dollar question that people ask me when I say that is, how do you get somebody to persuade themselves? Do you just show up? Hey, Swire, uh, go ahead and persuade yourself, and here's our bank wire details. No, of course not, right? You have to learn specific skilled questions and when and how to ask them with the right tone in a step-by-step process, okay, that psychologically get your prospects to pull you in and sell themselves rather than you trying to force it down their throat. Once you learn that, even if you're already doing well, we have clients that come to us as individual salespeople that already make 200, 300 grand a year, that six months later are making twice that or three times that. We have companies that come to us, even Fortune 500 companies, that do like a billion dollars in sales a year, that then double that the next year, okay? So whatever
0: you know now, you can always learn more advanced skills about that. You with me? Mm-hmm. Jeremy, I think we could go on for the next two hours, but obviously yeah. I want to be conscious of your, of your time. For a listener who wanted to learn more about what you do and, you know, really dive deeper with the NGPQ method, what is the best way to reach out to you?
1: Yeah, best way is just to join one of our free Facebook groups. We'll give them some hors d'oeuvres, some nibbles in there for free. Um, there's a lot of resources there. They go to uh, salesrevolution.pro. So you should have the link salesrevolution.pro. It's .pro, salesrevolution.pro. Right when they join, um, have them check their their Facebook Messenger, and we will have somebody on our team message them over a free training called the NEPQ 101 Mini Course. It's just a list of different NEPQ questions that they can use for different sales situations they're in, so they can have that for free. We go live in the Facebook group three, four times a week, different Q&As, different trainings, subject matters. I think we have 37 38,000 people in that Facebook wow. group that I just gave you access to. So they're welcome to go there. And look, if they want to learn more advanced training so they can sell a lot more than they are now, besides just the free resource in there, they can just message us, tag us in that group. And then they can always book with one of our team members to go through all the different training options we have for like their industry. Does that help
0: Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. I'll definitely include everything in the show notes and, you know, love learning more about sales. And, you know, these are things that is, is there, right? You know, there's little things that you change could could actually, like you said, double or triple your, your income.
1: It's just like baseball or softball, you can be out or safe at first base by a centimeter. In sales, you can make the sale or not make the sale by just a few words that you tweak, or a few questions that you change, which change the directory of that prospect's brain. Easy.
0: Thank you so much for coming on today.
1: Thanks, I appreciate you having